Welcome back to a brand new episode of Conversations with Coley. I am author Nicole Miller of the book series A Through Z Guide to Raising a Good Human, a series I'm writing to bridge the gap in communication between parents and children of all ages, tackling all topics, especially those tough subjects. Thank you for joining me and my guests as they share their experience and how they turned it around to improve their lives. For the next hour, spend time listening to our conversation about some of the most arduous situations or moments when all hope felt lost. But instead of giving up, they pushed through. Back to another episode of Conversations with Coley. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with author Tiffany Barnes of the book The Throwaway Girl, a book I read in a few hours. It was that good. And I have it in my reread pile. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here today. Yes, I'm excited to have you. I always start with an icebreaker question has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. And then we're going to talk about the book. Um, I don't put many books in my reread pile in the last year. You're number two. So I will be reading that book again. It is that good. And I hope that our listeners go and get a copy. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. I consider that a huge compliment. Yes. So your icebreaker question is, if you could choose your ultimate Valentine's Day dessert, what would it be? Ooh. I mean, I love German chocolate cake, but when I think of Valentine's, I don't know. I think of like red and white. Obviously, they've done a good job at marketing. So I'm thinking yeah. a strawberry shortcake. Ooh, yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you're a soda drinker, but Dr. Pepper came out with a strawberry Dr. Pepper. And apparently it tastes like eating a strawberry ice cream. So I thought get an angel food cake mix, dump that in there. If you got the zero sugar, it could be guilt-free, make sugar-free pudding and do a parfait in a fancy glass with some whipped cream. Ooh, girl. (laughs) Delicious. I have seen some posts about, it's like a strawberries and cream Dr. Pepper. I need to try it. Yes. So a friend of mine said drink the first sip. It'll be almost like that cosmic Coke that they had where it was like, oh, this is just soda water. But the flavor burst that comes after is like strawberry ice cream. Oh my gosh. I got to try it. Same. I'm waiting for zero sugar to come out. All right. So tell everybody about yourself. So my name is Tiffany Barnes. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah with my beautiful family, two dogs and a cat. So Max, Rocco, and Sasha. Max is about to be 15 years old. So that's pretty old in human years. He's the first dog that I've ever had. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to make my way and and be the change you wish to see in the world, as they say, right? That famous quote. to make an impact in people who've overcome abuse, such as I have in all of its forms. And by day, I'm a realtor. Uh, I do Airbnbs and I love to bike. And I just, um, I love to be around my family and and do things that I enjoy. Right now, my word for the year is peace. I'm just trying to follow the peace. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So for people who haven't read the book yet, explain the title, The Throwaway Girl. So the throwaway girl, I chose that title very long ago, almost right after I started writing the book. And the reason I went with that title, it's it's twofold. And actually, I've never had the question of this yet. So I'm glad you're asking. Um, I had a dentist that I would go and see. And obviously, because of my special circumstance, well, maybe not obviously, nobody really knows about that yet. But I was emancipated at the age of 15 years old. So I was legally an adult in a sense, right? And so I couldn't afford dental care. And so I got uh, to share my story with this dentist and kind of say, hey, here's my situation. I'm paying bills. I'm living on my own. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this root canal. And just kind of shared that story. And he's like, we'll work something out. We we can work out a payment plan. And uh, he had this divine inspiration one day. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Yeah, Um, that he, he goes, you need to title your book, The Throwaway Girl. I had a dream last night that you, your title of this book was going to be The Throwaway Girl. And I was like, I, oh, that's kind of interesting, you know? Um, yeah. And then as I thought about it more, the reason why I say it's such a divine intervention there is The Throwaway Girl or Throwaway Kids is a term coined for kids that go into foster care. 
Now I never needed to go into foster care because I did the emancipation process instead. But a throwaway kid is essentially, again, a term for somebody who is thrown away by their parents, put into the system. And I thought, you know, not only was it my dentist said, hey, you should call this book the throwaway girl, but it's a term for kids that go into foster care. And then in my story, you'll see, I don't want to spoil the story, um, but I was left with a garbage bag full of items at one point in my life and literally starting anew with this garbage bag full of clothes. And so um, really it just kind of came together trifecta really. Yeah. And, um, and that's where the book name came from. I love that. I That is the reason I bought the book. When I saw the book come out for pre-sale, that title grabbed me because I have an abuse story that is a little bit different than some people. I was shut in a room. I was allowed out only to eat. My meal times were timed and the, the the timer was set by a drunk. So if he just got sick and tired of me after two minutes, I had to leave. I could not finish my food and I was allowed to leave for school only. And so I call myself the shutaway child because mm-hmm. life happened outside our house and I was shut in the room. So I was hearing it, but not being a part of it. So when I saw the throwaway girl, I was like, what is this? I have got to buy this book. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Foster care kids, you left your house with just a garbage bag. These kids do as well. That's all they get to leave with is that garbage bag. Yes. So that's powerful. I love it. I love your book. Re- <laughs> reading that book brought me as an abuse survivor into those moments with you because I could relate to what you were going through and you described it in such a way I was like man I don't think that I could recall anything that is detailed do you know what I mean and so I was just I was blown away so I again I'm going to encourage people please (laughs) buy this book so as a child how was your disposition for an example I showed up as a class clown, look at me, look at me. I was always the loud one, the weird one, the out there one trying to get attention. For you, how did you show up to school every day when, you know, starting from when your abuse started? I think from my earlier memories, when my parents were still together, again, I don't want to spoil the book right. by any means, but um, I was more meek and mild. You know, I was kind of trained to not be seen or heard like a lot of kids are, you know, and I would try to like put myself out there to receive the love from specifically my mom and I wouldn't get it. So I just kind of go within. But once my parents divorced, I, I think I really started to focus on the accolades that you could get from being a good student in school. Mm. And that kind of progressed into up into high school, you know, where I ended up in high school and some of the accolades I received. And I think I really just thrived on receiving that adult praise from teachers and administration when you do get those awards, you know, being recognized as student of the month or, you know, getting a, you know, winning a spelling bee or something like that, because I wasn't getting it at home. So Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, one thing my parents can't take away from me, I learned very quickly is school. Kids got to go to school. So it became a solace because Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, trapped at home with my mom. And then to receive the praise that I was getting from adults at school as well, again, teachers, administration, and so on, I really thrived on that. So I'm like, oh, I loved that. So now what can I compete in next? Or what can I do to thrive or get that straight A? Because it was like my gold star that I was getting that I wasn't getting in a home environment. And that carried on through, you know, into high school and then, then into college. The book does end high school, but I continue to do that even after the book ends as well. Okay. So do you think you will write maybe a next book, a a book too? (laughs) I have been asked this quite a lot. I have had no intention of it, but now I'm kind of toying with it a little bit. I don't know. It's really difficult because it's taken me 22 years to write this one book and I'm 40 years old. So am I going to be 60 when I'm releasing my next one? Um, I don't know. I think part of it too, 
the reason why it's taken me so long in this process is, and you might relate to this being a survivor yourself, is the people-pleasing perfectionism. You know, I have what I call CDO, which is OCD, but the letters have to be in order, <laughs> you know? <I'm> just <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah. You know, when you grow up in chaos, such as I have, and it sounds like you have as well in a lot of ways, um, it's just my way of controlling my environment, you know? And so I'm like, such a perfectionist. I have rewritten this book a bazillion times, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And it's because I really wanted the reader to feel like they were sitting with me. And, and it sounds and like I accomplished it. Yes. Right. And it, yes. but it's taken me 22 years to get to that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I've thought about it. I, I am self published. So I did start my own um, publishing company called Flame Within Press. And when I did that, I thought, well, I'll do more books, but I want to do like women empowerment books where I do a compilation series of women who have also overcome abusive situations, shining their light now that I've kind of shared my own story. So that's where I thought the next book would come from. So it's not completely out of the, the picture, but it might be a third book down the road. Uh, yeah. You never know. So Yeah. And part of that 22 year journey was some of that kind of coming to terms of what part of the story you wanted to tell, um, how you wanted to tell it. Um, were you, did you have any imposter syndrome about it? Any of that kind of stuff? I think the 22 years, like I say, is just more so perfectionism. Um, okay. What I told, and I know you've mentioned this about the vividness of the memories. Those are really all the memories I have. There's not really? a lot more to add to it. Yeah, because yeah. I know when we are survivors of abuse, we tend to block things out. And I still have, you know, that complex PTSD. So even now, I'm really grateful I wrote the story, the book, you know, my life, because I feel like it's starting to fade from, from my memory now. You know, now it's in a yeah. book form and it'll always be there. But those are the only pieces I could remember. And so I really elaborated on those sections of yeah. my life. So, um, yeah, you asked me another part of that question. Sorry, I, I did a tangent there. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think you did good enough. <laughs> and if it comes up again, I'll just ask it again. That's okay. And that's why this is a conversation because you know what? We can go off onto tangents and, and get as deep as we want and talk about how we want. So. <laughs> yeah. Man, I'm so sorry. I like drew a blank. No. There was another part I was going to mention, but yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Um, I completely get the not having a lot of memories and that's where I struggle. People have asked me to write my story because people who watched it unfold were like, you need to put it in a book form. You need to inspire others. I rose above so much adversity, but it took a long time. It was a long journey, almost 30 years of my life. And so um, to be able to be in healing, it's hard to be like, hmm, how am I going to put this in writing and get the reader to understand it? You did a wonderful job. So something to be said for perfectionism. <laughs> yes. I always say it's a blessing and a curse. And yes. in this case, it was a blessing because I think even in my regular day-to-day -day work, I tend to, um, you know, one thing I think that's you know, kind of going back for a minute. One thing I think is a blessing that came out of what I went through is I'm very thoughtful of other people. Mm -hmm. And so even as a realtor, you know, if I'm working with a first time home buyer, I really put myself in their shoes, how scary it was or is, um, how, you know, you might feel like, oh my gosh, how am I going to afford this? So I try to give them something really great for a closing gift, you know, and just try to be really thoughtful along the process. And I feel like that's a blessing I have because when you're in an environment where you're on eggshells all the time as a child, you tend to be very hyper vigilant anyways with, mm -hmm. okay, this person walking in the room, what's their energy that they're coming with? Mm -hmm. And so um, it's been a blessing for me because I really am good about putting myself in another person's shoes mm -hmm. and trying to, um, you know, empathize with them. Yes. Or sympathize rather. Yes. So. And empathy, I think is a great word too, because a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, uh, survivors of 
child abuse and that have PTSD, they're hardwired to people please, they're hardwired to feel vibration from people and to read the room and do all those things and to feel for others. I don't necessarily think that's a bad side effect. Right. I actually feel very blessed myself to feel that same way. And as long as people pleasing isn't to your detriment, why is it bad to be nice to others? In right. My yeah. You don't want to lose yourself, obviously, in the people pleasing. Right. And maybe people pleasing isn't exactly the right word. Right. Words, but it is, you know, being thoughtful of others and not so self-absorbed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's finally nice to meet somebody that gets it. <laughs> yes, I see you. <laughs> yes, and I see you. So a lot of people would say to me, and I don't know if you ever got this um, when you share your story. Well, why didn't you just tell a teacher, tell, tell the school? Why didn't you just tell? So I feel that the times that we were investigated, um, specifically when my parents were still together, that I was not going to be believed because if the grownups weren't believed or if the grownups got away with it, then why would the child be believed? I guess is kind of where I'm going with that. And then later in my story, you'll see when I finally did have the courage to say something to the trusted adult, in that case was my mother, yeah. I was not believed, you know, are you sure you're not making this up? And so, and then in the very end where the last abuse occurred, I was told, if you say anything, I'll kill you. And so yeah. in that instance, you know, obviously I kept my mouth shut because I didn't want to be murdered. Yeah. So it, I think a lot of it is when you're a child, you don't feel like you have a voice and you don't feel like you're going to be heard. I definitely didn't feel like I was seen. And so I felt that if I did say something, there was going to be a negative repercussion, usually in the form of violence. You know, my mom mm -hmm. would often say, you say something, I'll break your face, you know? And so I'm like, well, I don't want my face broken, you know, and I was getting beaten. So um, it was more just silence because I didn't want the repercussions of what if I wasn't silent, you know? And so like even now, not to step on your podcast, I have my own podcast mm -hmm. too, and it's called Speak Loud. And mm -hmm. the reason I chose that is because I want people to come on and speak loud and stand in their truth, even if their voice shakes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people now that are still in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they've never said a thing to anybody about what's, you know, gone on in their life as far as abuse. And they're carrying that with them, that darkness with them. So I think a big mission in this book and what my what I'm doing with my podcast and other things that I'm involved with is to help others find their courage to mm -hmm. say something, even if it's something that happened to you 30 years ago, carrying that with you can literally create a cancer in your body, literally create a literally. cancer in your body. Mm -hmm. if you don't let go of that energy. So, and obviously I think you can tell by now I'm very much into some woo-woo energy things, but... <laughs> So am I, but I think that comes from our young, as young people going through what we went through and having to always be careful not to set that person off, whoever our abuser might've been. Right. Um, and it's, I'm glad that you kind of touched on the health thing of carrying it with you and it literally causes a cancer. It also can cause autoimmune disorders. It can cause your body to turn against you. And instead of healthcare professionals recognizing when someone's body is going haywire screaming, this screams depression, you need to take some depression pills. They need to help the person by saying, did you go through something? Do you need have trauma? Do you need to speak to someone? Because that's the only way. A pill's not going to make it go away. And you're always made to feel as if it's up in your brain. It's in your head. It's psychosomatic. It's something that's not real, but it really is real. It's carrying trauma and your body has to get rid of it somehow. And it, it outlets it in an illness. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually dealing with an autoimmune disease myself. I have Hashimoto's. Okay. And I've always been very fit, um, you know, tried to take care of myself. And then it's been in these last two years, a lot of things have manifested itself. And so these last two years also, I've done a lot of deep diving into my life, past life regressions. Um, you know, even, you know, trauma goes back seven years in generations and you have that DNA inside your body. Mm -hmm. So even though maybe you didn't go through trauma, maybe your parents or your grandparents did or so on and so forth. And that's within your DNA. Mm -hmm. 
So it's important to do the work, to do the work mm-hmm. and see, like you say, if you're feeling depression, let's not take a, you know, a Zoloft to make it go away. Let's get to the root of the problem. And we're mm-hmm. all like an onion, you know, in that center of the onion, we're probably going to cry, get into it <laughs> like we would with yeah. an onion. But that's really where the magic happens when you can get to the root of the problem and really solve it on an energetic and cellular level. Absolutely. 100%. And when I was reading your book, I did want to ask you if you had an autoimmune disorder. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Really? Yes, I do. (laughs) And the reason I ask is because I have, I have not gotten a clear diagnosis. I've gotten, you either have this or you have this. I never went far enough into it because they kept throwing medicine down my throat that made me feel worse. So instead I decided I don't care about what the diagnosis is. I now know that it is something that I need to deal with by getting past my past. Yes. (laughs) And taking care of what my body is saying it needs. Right. And you're, you're healing for seven generations beyond you, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing. Like I would call you a light worker. You're here on this earth, creating light in what has been real darkness, you know, that's happened to you. So that's really amazing. Mm -hmm. So I did want to ask while reading the book, so without trying to give anything away. So for me, I know that, like you said, seven years of generational abuse or past abuse, my abuse story started with my grandmother before I was even thought of and before my mother was even thought of. She went through something pretty significant and she suffered pretty deeply and it reflected on how she showed up as a mother. And then I think that reflected on how my mother showed up as a mother. Was that the case in your family situation? That's a great question. I have been doing so much work on my family, trying to figure this out. Um, With my mom's side, I can't really find it. I did find out that my mom was sexually abused when she was young. Uh, She grew up in Washington, DC. And so that's kind of, cause she's a very promiscuous woman. Again, we don't want to give out too much, but I thought maybe that's lent a hand into why she has gone down that path in life. And then as far as my dad, I, I think my dad has never been diagnosed with autism because Mm. he shows so many signs, you know, he's just so incredibly smart. You know, he'll tell you what record this, when this record came out, how many songs are on it? This song is on the B side, you know, he just, art or history, he can tell you anything history, but socially he's just not there. You know, he has a hard time expressing himself, hugging, telling me he loves me, anything like that. And before this book came out, which my dad's side of the family is more so what I've been so concerned about, but I'm like, I just got to let this out and stand in my truth and just, you know, let the, let it lie where it lies. And I tried interviewing some of his sisters. Um, I've sat down with him and said, you know, what was your childhood like? And I can't really get an answer out of him. I know that he left school a lot when he was a kid. Um, So he was always skipping out on school and he just didn't like school. So that would kind of make sense with the autistic side of things, you know, because he didn't want to pay attention socially too. He didn't feel like he was accepted. But as far as abuse goes, I can't get a straight answer. You know, um, I'll get some of the family that says grandpa was really physical And then I'll get other people that say grandma was very emotionally this way, you know, Mm. like neglectful. I do know that my dad was told when my grandparents divorced that his dad was dead. And so he lived, I don't know how many years um, from the time they divorced until my dad was in Little League one day. And this man shows up at the baseball field and says, hey, you know, whatever his name is, my dad's name. um, And I'm keeping that private because I've changed names for privacy purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm your dad, you know, where's all the other kids at? And my dad's like, no, you're not. My dad's dead. What are you talking about? And so then my grandpa's like, what is your mom telling you? You know? And so my dad grew up for these portion, this portion of his life thinking his dad was dead. That's very traumatic. Yeah. You know, and then this guy walks up to you while you're playing baseball one day and says, no, I'm your dad, you know? And so I don't know that that doesn't explain physical abuse, but that's definitely emotionally neglectful. Yeah. And it can, uh, especially 
if you do have an autistic mind and you're not diagnosed, it, it could affect you in ways, who knows, who knows, right. but that's, yeah. So that is basically generational. Cause I, I was thinking that too, while I was reading, I was like, I wonder if she has a generational story because I can actually pinpoint how, I guess how I got to where I got to when I was a child and how I ended up there because of what happened to my grandmother all those years ago. We don't know about the great grandmother because they didn't talk back then. Right. It was and something that, they didn't discuss. No, you just, yeah. you just sucked it up and you dealt with it. And I think that we still kind of carry that same stigma in today's society. And that's why my podcast is called Conversations with Coley, because we talk about the things that we think about but we often don't talk about. <laughs> I am grateful though, once the Me Too movement kind of happened, we've been better about not sweeping it under the rug as much. I think one thing I'm really passionate about too, and this might be striking to some people is, <clears throat> excuse me, that this happens to men too. Yes. And I have a lot of men that come onto my podcast and share their story of abuse, not as many as I'd like. Yeah. But uh, this I really enjoy that they they will come and and they will share because that it does happen to men too. Domestic yeah. violence, children violence, it happens to them, and they don't all carry it on to be abusers. Right. Like like they're stigmatized. Yeah. I hate that there is not enough men that feel comfortable coming forward. Right. Yeah, the first guy I had on my podcast, we titled it "It's Manly to Talk About Abuse" because I like you know it. it's one in four women, one in six men before the age of eighteen suffer some form of abuse. Number one form of abuse is sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So just based on the audience that's tuning into this podcast, just statistically, we know there's going to be men tuning in that have been through it. But it's just like, for some reason, we have, it's like we take away their masculinity by them admitting that they've been through some sort of a traumatic event, like abuse. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, they're carrying that in them just as we are. Yep. Yep. And I, I would like it to be more socially accepted and stop putting it in the box of this belongs in the woman box. This belongs in the man box because there is no box. Right. We are all doing, we are all going through something together right, <laughs> right. It's, it's a humanity epidemic yes absolutely yeah. a humanity epidemic I like that so during your because you started suffering abuse young so yes. during your teenage years you know when the hormones kicked in and all that how did you stop yourself from going down the path like I decided to go down I decided to go down the wrong crowd the drugs the alcohol to try to cope with what I was feeling and going through after I was finally freed from my room after seven years I went completely off the rails how did you stay so on track and focused on, you know what I mean? Educating yourself, doing better and not falling into that trap. You know, I've thought about this question in my life so many times. And the one thing that I can conclude is that I wanted to be everything that my parents were not. I think I had enough of an example between the two of them of what I didn't want to turn out to be meaning they were high school dropouts and I saw where that led financially, you know, they were always struggling. My mom was always on uh, drugs later on in my life. I saw what it did to her physically and mentally. I didn't want to turn out that way. Um, same thing sexually. I, as I mentioned, she was very promiscuous and I saw that she would flaunt it in front of my face, which you'll read in the book. And yeah. it's, I was like, okay, ew, I don't want to be anything like that because I know how it makes me feel as her daughter watching this. And so I really just attribute my success in sticking with school obviously was important because I loved the accolades. That was a fuel to my flame to have those, you know, positive reinforcements, to get those trophies, to get those certificates, you know, that was my gold star. And even now in my lines of work, I've worked with people, they're like, you're such a gold star person, you brown noser, or you goody two shoe. And I'm like, what? what, what, you know, like I've been teased about that because I do strive for, if there's a competition, I don't always have to win. If I get, you know, a bronze instead of a gold, I'm okay with that. But I do strive for trying to get the gold. 
but I just love those accolades. And so um, that's one part of my success in sticking with school as I'm like, I'm going to graduate because my parents did not. But then I love the accolades that went with, you know, doing good too. But then staying away from drugs, because where I went to school, Kearns High, it was not the greatest area, you know, like people would say, oh, do you guys wear bulletproof vests there? (laughs) You know, we didn't. But it was a pretty, you know, um, low income, very diverse school. And so there was a great chance of me turning to teenage pregnancy and drugs. And I think, again, I just looked at my mom and saw that she did those things. And I was like, nope, I don't want to be that. Even so now I'm 40, I'm not married. You know, that's why I said, here's my life. I've got my fur babies. I don't have kids. Um, I kind of raised my sister out of foster care and I, you know, was the oldest. So I did a lot of raising with my family. So I just know, um, I'm kind of going off on a tangent again, so, no, no. Up, but I don't want to have children of my own because there are too many kids that were in my situation or are in foster care. Like there are billboards on the side of the freeway right now here in Salt Lake city that say they need foster parents. There's more kids than parents. So why would I produce my own child when I can adopt somebody out of a situation and an environment that I have been in myself or something similar, yeah. and I can give them the life that I wish I had. Some I can rescue them the way somebody rescued me. I and so, that. yeah, I just would never want to have kids of my own. I would definitely adopt um, out of a situation like that. And then the love situation that'll happen when it happens. I'm very particular because of what I've been through, you know, sexual trauma can come through as an adult. And I want to tell your listeners, it's not rainbows and roses. I'm still working on myself all these years later. You know, I still have things that I'm getting counseled on and, and healing. So it is, it is work, but if you Mm -hmm. do the work, there's so much sweetness to it. Yes. And when you're suffering and you're in a low state of mind, it's hard to wrap your mind around something simple as changing your mindset. What does that mean? What's that going to do for me? I was that person for a long, long time. I was very stubborn. Didn't want to get it. I've been only on the road to healing for 15 years. But yes, I feel I will always be educating myself, working on myself and evolving myself forever because you have to unwrap all the stuff we may have only gone through something for seven years but it wraps itself into such a tight ball of just so much emotions um uh anger just different emotions that you have to work through to show up and do a good thing instead of you know continuing the pattern i guess is what i'm trying to say (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think too, when you're a kid, you're such a sponge, as they say, right? Those Mm -hmm. are such formative years that you really have to undo some stuff. It's different. I'm not trying to say one abuse is better than another. It's not comparing. But when you're a child going through abuse, especially in those first seven to 10 years of your life, I feel like in my own experience, and I can say this from experience, it's far more work. (laughs) to overcome for some Mm -hmm. reason because you're so young and it's like built into you Mm -hmm. you know and then you start having these trauma responses and coping mechanisms as you start to progress you know now you're a teenager and then you're in your 20s and 30s that it still manifests itself later in life until you do the work absolutely absolutely what things did the kid Tiffany want to do different in her life. So in those moments, I know I had moments like this, like in moments of being beaten or insulted, I would look at my abuser and think, I'm going to show you, I'm going to be somebody that you say I'm, I can't be because I'm too stupid or I'm too this, I'm too that. So when you were a child, did you ever have those moments? Like when I was by myself in my room, I'd be, I just look up at the sky and be like, I am going to do something to expose this that I'm living in and I'm going to be a mouthpiece to stop abuse to other children. And I was nine, I think when I thought that, so this was a big grandiose. I was just going to save the world. I was going to put my cape on and I was going to do it. You know, what was it like for you in those moments when you may had maybe had some alone time and you could just sit and stare off into space and think about what you were dealing with and what you were enduring and how you were going to change for the future. I don't think I was emotionally 
um, mature enough to make those kind of plans until I was out of high school, you know, or okay. like in high school, you know, you can yeah. kind of see near the end of the book that I'm starting to see, okay, this is why I didn't take my life or this is why I'm still here, you know? Yeah. In the younger years, I would always fantasize about, you know, I love to climb trees. They were my escape. And I love to be, you know, I felt protected up there. And I would always fantasize about being with my Grammy. My Grammy was such an important part of my life and still is, even though she's passed. Actually, in a couple of weeks, it will be um, 10 years ago since she's passed. And um, I think when I was young, I just always was like, I want to be like my Grammy because she was such a ball of light and she was so much love and she was all the good things in the world that I wanted. And so yeah. I think that's kind of where my head was so young mm -hmm. until I started to see the impact. I think it was really when I was emancipated, right? Because that's when I started to see kids coming out of the woodwork saying, well, why are you living on your own? You know, that's right. cool. Let's go have a kegger at your house. There's yes. No... And it's like, no, 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 no. no. I don't have too. time I for said, that. How did she escape that? Yeah. It's like, I don't have time for that. I'm leaving school now at noon to get work credit while I work at Shopco. And then I'm going to go waitress tonight. So I have money to get on the bus or put gas in the car, depending on if the car was working at that time or not. And so um, it wasn't until then that my story was making an impact accidentally. I didn't mean for that, right? And then kids were like, oh, well, I'm having this at home or this person I know is having this at home. And then that's where those Tiffany epiphanies came in, I like to call them. Yes. Um, so prior to that, it was more just survival. Um, but if I was looking up at the sky and fascinating or you know, fantasizing about anything, it was to be like my Grammy or be more with my Grammy because she was my solitude and my safety and my, I don't know, she was such a light. And I always say, if I'm anything of a woman today, she is a huge part of that because she was my saving grace. Yeah. And, and she's I, my mom's mom. And yeah. my mom was like the worst person to me. It's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something that I also connected with you on because my grandma died when I was young, my mom's mom, but to me as a grandchild, and she was not abusive to my mother. She was neglectful because she was in her own depression. So to me, my grandma was like the epitome of who I just loved and adored. And she was taken from me at a very young age. And I used to think that my mother wouldn't act the way she was if my her mother was still alive. I think losing her mother at a young age and then everything kind of rolling down, sexual abuse being exposed, having to divorce, being a single mom and just going down that roller coaster sucked her up. And yeah. so when I was reading about you and your connection to your grandmother, I was like, I know exactly what you mean. She sounds like such a nice woman. She's so loving, so sweet. She's keeping you uplifted and keeping you, you know what I mean? From, from harming yourself from an even younger age. How did she raise this woman? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do know. So my mom was the youngest of, I think six kids. I could figure it out if I sat and counted, but I think it's six. <laughs> and she came from a very LDS family. So Mormons is what a lot of people call it, but it's LDS Latter-day Saints. And so um, in that religion, and I'm not here to bash any religions. I'm particularly not LDS. I grew up in that culture, but there's a lot of repression. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, you can't even drink coffee, soda, tea. You know, there's a lot of res uh, restrictions Mm -hmm. And so you'll see that kids within this religion, which probably could be any religion, right? They're, I've heard the same thing about Catholicism and other things, yep. but I wonder, because I try to rhyme or reason with it too, right? Because as I mentioned, I try to like put myself in another person's shoes. Why did my mom do this to me? Mm -hmm. I think one, her being the youngest, because um, I've asked her sisters about this, maybe she was getting neglected a little bit by grandma, you know, because maybe she was like, by that time, she's like, I have all these damn kids. I have no idea. 
You yes, know, when you're a grandma, you, it's different because mm -hmm. you get to make up for what you didn't do with your kids. I've heard, I'm not a grandma. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's part of it. And then also within the religion being so repressed, maybe that was her like, oh, well, I'm going to be promiscuous because this is like the opposite of anything you should do in this religion. I don't know. I've tried to yeah. write religion with it because I just, my Grammy was just so amazing. And then also talking to my cousins that grew up with me that are in the book, they don't have the same perception of my Grammy as I do. And maybe it's because they didn't live with her. They don't have a bad perception, but they don't right. have the, the like, same. like she was my saving grace. You know what I mean? Like, right. oh, she was my Grammy. She was nice. You yeah. Know, she was loving, but I just viewed her in just such a different way. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's probably because you're of your home situation as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can completely see that. So did you ever in your, after you were emancipated, got through high school into college and whatnot, did you ever try to rekindle a relationship with your mother? I have not. The straw that broke the camel's back for me was the graduation piece. And I'm not going to get into it because yeah. you got something for the reader, right? Exactly. Um, that was kind of like, you know, I really just don't mean anything to her you know, and I would give her chance after chance after chance. And even now as an adult, um, like my sister, my only sister, she's like, I just don't understand why you still connect with mom. Like I've gone uh, back East where she was living at the time once or twice to go see her. And it was like a three day scavenger hunt to find this woman. I'm not kidding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like to find, nail down an address and like say, go see her. And, um, I would be in tears because it was really hard to see my mom that way. And one thing that's really unique with my situation with my mom was I grew up alone with her for the first six years before a sibling came along. So mm -hmm. no other siblings, just me and her. And at that time she wasn't doing drugs, but she was very manipulative and so she, I viewed her like she was modeling at the time. She was very beautiful. She did have a great voice, even though she was very egotistical about it, you know? And so I remind my, I have two brothers and a sister. I remind them, I grew up with a different mom than you have. Yeah. You know? And unfortunately my brothers grew up with a drug addict mom, you know, right. so much so that one of my brothers is disabled because she did drugs while she was pregnant with them. Right. And so, um, I don't know. I just, I don't have a relationship with her. She has reached out a time or two crying. My drug dealer's going to kill me if I don't give him money. And I've bought into that a time or two, you know, um, maybe looking for some, trying to rekindle something maybe, right. but no, I just, that mother wound is not necessarily a wound anymore. It's just that I'm quite honestly surprised she's still alive. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, I will mourn her. I've talked with this about my, you know, my sister and I are very close. She's the one that I took out of foster care and raised her a little bit. And, um, she just doesn't understand my position. And she's like, I'm not even going to be sad when mom dies. Like she, she looks like my mom and she hates that. She's yeah. she hates oh. me compared to my mom. And I just, I think I have a little bit more of a soft spot than any of the other kids because I did have as bad as she was to me. I, you know, forgiveness is key, I think, in healing from abuse. And I've forgiven mm -hmm. all abusers, not to mm -hmm. say what they did is right, but I've had to get rid of that energy. Right. And um, I just have a different mom that I grew up with in those first six years than yeah. they will ever have had, you know. 100%. So. Yes. And I think that as children, we don't realize, because I sit and think of the different faces of my mom. She, yeah. in the first probably six years of my life was Susie Homemaker, great mom. She switched. And so I don't, I, if I had siblings, I guess they would have gotten a completely different mom. They wouldn't right. have had the same mom. And so in those first six years, we were very deeply connected and it was hard for me to come to terms with the fact that she didn't love me. Like I think a mother should as a mother I'm a mother how I I love my children no matter what my children do I love them unconditionally and would not want any harm to ever come to them you right. know what I mean so I think that it's interesting because we have our own viewpoints as to who someone is in the moments as we have them and you being the oldest 
you have you have it from a different perspective right I was her first go at being a parent too mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. not that she yeah. had it figured out maybe by the fourth one but yeah it's all a perspective mm-hmm. and I've tried to I you know I have had some family like why did you write this book why can't you leave the past in the past and it's I was gonna ask that next oh. yes yes let's talk sorry. about that no don't be sorry um, at all yeah so I had an uncle two weeks ago that was literally like, you should tell your dad that you have this in your book. And why can't you leave the past in the past? I'm like, well, this is my truth. And I can't tiptoe around what happened. Nothing's embellished. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the truth. Mm -hmm. And my dad being who he is, we've never sat and talked about what he did to me, you know? And so it's like, I will be a hundred percent transparent I was terrified to release this book while my dad is still living because I have tried to build a relationship with him. It is very one-sided because I think a lot of that attributes to his autism. He doesn't reach out like I reach out. I'm the one that takes him to lunch every month and stuff like that. And I was very worried about all that work I put in with him being taken away, but I can't my story I feel is so impactful in a way that if somebody who's been through trauma and abuse reads it will hopefully find some light in their own life to overcome and I can't keep suppressing that I can't wait till my dad dies one day and be afraid that he's gonna read these pages of this book it's my truth and he knows it's what's happened Right. And maybe in the end it together. Right. Right. And maybe in the end it will be the healing that we need because we've never talked about it. So, you know, it's, I'm scared for my mom to read it because she's on drugs. Most people in your book, they hear money. I'll tell you what, I haven't made any money on this book. It cost me more money already than I (laughs) Yes. Girl, I know. <laughs> yes. So I, now, I'm getting self-published. I did the Amazon thing. Girl, it's hard to sell books. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. I think I've sold like 225 books or so in three weeks. It's yeah, I'm not making millions of bucks but, over but here. But you're also marketing your ass off. You had to do a lot of work to get it into the stores, into the things, and you know yeah. what I mean? You're doing a that's a lot of work. <laughs> so, it is. Yeah. But at the yes. end of the day, I didn't write the book to be famous. I right. wrote the book for people to realize they too can overcome. And so what I'm getting at is I'm worried my mom might read it and come after me for money of some sort. I've changed the names mm-hmm. in the book for this reason. It's my truth. I'm not slandering her, but it's my truth. And, but people see money, right? It's like when somebody dies, all these people come out of the woodwork because they think money's involved. Yeah. But I have to just remember my alignment and my alignment is to those out there who are going through abuse, have been through abuse. I want people to know, I see them, I hear them. They're not alone. It's not their fault all of those things. That's the reason I wrote the book. I love it. And I thank you so much for that because it's about time that, you know, people release their stories, however they need to, to, to show others who are going through it. Cause when you're going through it, it's the best when you can find somebody that you can relate to. Yes. You feel like, man, it's not just me because when you're going through abuse, I don't know how it was for you, but for me, I thought I was the only kid on earth being treated this way. I was genuinely shocked when I would hear abuse stories. I think at the time that I was in my room, David Peltzer's book came out. He was on Oprah. I could hear it. Yes. A child called it. And he was on Oprah and I could hear it on the TV through my closed door. So I made an excuse to go to the bathroom so I could see him and see the book cover. And I went in the bathroom and I was listening and he was talking about how he was abused and his mother was poisoning him with like rotted meat or feeding him rotted meat. And I remember thinking, okay, so he's been through it. At least my mother is not poisoning me. So I have it better than he does. Okay, so I feel like you're my soul sister right now. (laughs) I have told so many people, so a child called it and then he did two books after that. Yeah, which I never Um, did read those, but So I read all of those. So I was that kid that went into the Barnes and Noble, which my book is in Barnes and Noble. I feel like that was like the pinnacle of, okay, my book is in Barnes and Noble because I've always thought that would be amazing. But I would go 
straight to the self-help section. I'm talking when I was 16 years old, I was reading self-help books, but I don't remember how I got my hands on a child called it, but it was a game changer for me. So I should also say, which I never put him in my acknowledgements, but I probably should have. He was a big inspiration to me why I wrote my story. Like his, like what he'd been through was just, I can't even believe, you know, and it affected me. And I think that was a little of my Tiffany epiphany too, of this is another reason I need to share my story. Yeah. It's so crazy. You know that. (laughs) Yes. I connected with him instantly because I, I was like, oh my God, he knows what I feel. He knows what I feel. He's the one person in this world that knows how I feel. And when you're, when your world is reduced to school, home and room, you really don't see and understand how big the world really is. Right. You know, so, oh my God, David Peltzer. This is the second time that I've had a conversation with somebody that knew that book and knew who he was. I love it. Yeah. I hope more people go revisit that book because his story was very powerful. Well, and it's funny too, because when you asked me if I was going to do a second book, that's what comes to my mind. Because he did a second book that was like further into his life and then a third Mm -hmm. book as an adult. And I was like, oh, that's kind of the progression that he took. But I do want to say, I, I see you on the thing of, you know, your point of you felt like it was something that everybody went through, you know, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. But for me, I didn't realize that this is something that not everybody at home went through. No, I thought I was the only one. Oh, see, and I thought, oh, this is, this is how parents treat their kids. I had yeah. no better idea, you know? I knew better because I did have some insight to other families. I, you know, we had, you know, family get togethers and cousins and and things like this weren't going on in their home. Their kids were allowed to run, run around, watch TV. Kids would be confused. How come you can't play outside? How come there's this, why are you in your room? There were kids in my neighborhood that discovered I was in my room and would come to my window and be like, why can't you come out and play? They could not wrap their minds around it. So I felt very alone very alone. And these kids were so sweet. They would come to my window when we would slip paper through a little crack of the screen. So we would play games on this piece of paper till I got busted. <laughs> you need to write a story, Nicole. You need I to. do. I do. I can't decide how I want to do it. If I want to do the facts or if I want to do a fictionalized version, starting back to my grandmother and going through and then because the only facts I have are my facts. I don't have her actual facts. I have the stories that I've been told. So Mm -hmm. I haven't decided how I want that to roll out, but I do know I want to take a class and figure out how to write a book in a way like you did, where it sucks you in and it brings you to that place and that time with you. I was right there with you in all those moments and I couldn't devour those pages fast enough. I I don't know how many pages your book was, but I only read, it took me only a few hours. I could not put it down. I was just like, I need to know what happens next. I need to know what happens next. So what happens next for Tiffany Barnes? You know, I'm just out there trying to spread my message, right? I'm doing this so organically. Just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I sat in one of my favorite bookstores called King's English, and I said, please let me sell my book here. So right now, I'm just on a mission to um, get the word out that this book is out there uh, as a resource, I would say, you know, for people to just understand that they too can overcome. In the back of the book, you'll see I've got a nonprofit that I started and it's still going today for the abused. I've got this podcast, which is a resource for people to come to. I release every Friday and I just interview people who've been through various uh, traumatic circumstances, sharing their stories of um, triumph and hope. And so I'm just, okay, so I've hit the radio waves. I'm hitting the book waves. I'm hopefully I can do some speaking. I'm just trying to hit all platforms to be a light and a voice for people to realize they too can overcome. And, And you can live a sweet life. You know, I, of yeah. course I've got circumstances and trials and tribulations. I became a millionaire in my twenties, uh, through real estate and, uh, real estate has really afforded me some great financial things. And so, I mean, maybe that's something I could put in the next book if I do it, yeah. but, um, yeah, that's what's next. I, I just want to keep sharing. I just want to keep sharing the message and there'll be sometimes I release my podcast and only 10 people listen, but that's okay. That's 10 people that have been affected, you Mm -hmm. know, and 
every day I wake up, I'm like, if I just even sell one book, it's one book that could save somebody from killing themselves or, you know, going down into drugs and all these things because they feel like they're alone. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I feel the same way when on my journey, you know, you'll get people that are like, what are you trying to do? Be famous. Who do you think you are? An influencer? No, yeah. I'm, I'm a message spreader. I want people to be aware of what it feels like to be an abused child and what it feels like to not be seen or heard and to be feel like you're invisible in a crowd of people and how it's okay. And you can come through the other side and it, it's beautiful on the other side. You you're a light worker. That's what yes. I'm saying. You need to start telling people you're a light worker. I love it. Red light. That's yes. what you do. So you and I are soul sisters. We are on a very same mission. We have gone through a very similar experience. And I cannot believe that I met you, but I am so, so happy that I have. I am too. Thank you so much for being such a big cheerleader and, you know, being on board with what I'm trying to do. It means so, so much to me. I mean, you from the beginning have been shouting from the rooftops as soon as you yep. found out about this book. And I really can't thank you and your listeners enough. And I thank you for letting me shout it out, not thinking I'm weird. I was like, is she going to think like I'm her stalker? Like, what is this girl doing? Because I'm like, you need this book. You need this book. But really and truly, if even if you haven't experienced abuse, but you want to see it through the eyes of an abused person, that your book is the one is the starting point. It's the one to read so that you can kind of get some insight of what it's like for a child. You know, I don't think many people think that children can have suicidal ideations, but when you are treated the way you were, the way I was, I felt for you because I feel, I think your first memory was five. I was uh, like, I think it was four, four. four. Okay. Yeah. Four. I was like, this is a baby. She's a baby. I didn't have that kind of abuse happened to me until I was much older, like the hitting and the, and the stuff like that. I had the sexual abuse that I suppressed. So I didn't even have memory of it. So I was like, oh my God, this poor baby is going through this, how that must have felt. And then, you know, I don't know when your first suicidal ideation was, but systematic abuse will take you to that level, depending on how much you're enduring in your little tiny life. Right. For me, being thrown away by my mother, I felt if the person who gave me life doesn't want me, then why even have a life? Yeah. And that's where the suicide came in for me. So I would say it was 13 years old. So 13 to 15, I was just ready to be done. Mm -hmm. There's no reason yeah. to be here. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And our mothers or who we equate love with. Right. So when your mother doesn't love you or says she doesn't love you or treats you like she doesn't love you or sets you up for failure and just betrays you all the time from the time you're little, that is heartbreaking. Is that how you felt during those times? Were you like just heartbroken? Absolutely. I do sometimes wonder if that's why I'm still single oh. <laughs> because that's where you get your love, right? And so- Obviously, I've been abused by men. Um, in, my mom emotionally and mentally abused me, but I was sexually abused by men and physically abused by men. And so I think I still have a little bit of an issue with being close to a man. And the last man I was in a relationship with took his life. So uh, that was a while ago, 12 years ago. And I haven't been in a relationship since. And so... Mm -hmm. I think between the mother issue, right? Because that's where you learn that nurturing and that love, um, that being absent. And then just what's happened to me with men is I'm really looking for a diamond in the rough. I'm looking for somebody who can match my energy and um, can go out there and be an entrepreneur like I have. I have not had a J-O-B, a job, <laughs> um, since I was 19 years old, I have worked for myself since I was 19 years old. So and I'm for you. 21 years. Yeah. And so I need somebody that can match that. And so I think that's the one thing I'm trying to really figure out and heal right now is that love piece in my life. I'm not necessarily saying I have to have a husband tomorrow, right. but I definitely have walls. Oh, I have brick 
you know, <laughs> mortared walls that have, are, have steel in them, you know, that I, <laughs> yeah. I to work out with my heart. So, yeah. Oh, I love it. Do you want to talk about the nonprofit at all, or would you rather people find out about it through the book? Um, yeah, I'll just do a quick little something because yeah. so, I'd love for them to read, but uh, my nonprofit is called Share. And I started it in high school uh, back in 1998, and it stood for Students Helping the Abused React and Empower. So it was just like a support group. It never started as a nonprofit. It was a support group for kids to come together who had been through abuse to learn how to react, as it says, for the R of share in a positive way, and then empower each other to continue to do that. And it then steamrolled into a nonprofit. It is a 501c3, and it now stands for sharing hope for the abused through resilience and empowerment. So we kept that empower for the E, but the R got changed to resilience. And that's my favorite word of all time, resilience. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, you know, we go out there, we do a youth empowerment day every year. It's coming up in May here in Salt Lake City. And it's a day that we, you know, go to the boys and girls clubs or um, work with the foster care system and have these kids come. It's kind of like a field day where they're out on the field. We've got sumo suits and jump ropes and art projects and just things where kids can come and just be themselves and not worry about the, the problems at home that they're facing. Um, and so that's just really something that's near and dear to me because I didn't have a lot to empower me through. I really do feel. I'm going to get real woo-woo here on you. I feel that I have a soul contract, meaning I was sent here for this reason. I'm, this is, I'm fulfilling my contract. I, yeah. before I came to the, this earth, agreed to go through these things so that I could help others do the yeah. same thing and find their own awakening. I know that's very out there. It's very woo-woo. No. But, no, you're not the only guest that I've had on this podcast that says that. And I can completely get down with that because I always felt that way with myself. I would say to myself, you're, you're going through this because you are supposed to do something with it. Right. So I do not think that's woo woo at all. People who don't know probably do. <laughs> Maybe they've never put a label on it or something, but yes. um, you can always go to sharethemovement.org. To find out more information about SHARE, what events are going on. We really do things here locally for the moment because we don't have as big of a, a national reach, but we're open to doing this worldwide, you know, in the end. So, well, I would like to be involved in the Georgia chapter when you want to do one. <laughs> okay. I like it. Yes. Um, so, tell everybody where they can find you, your book and anything that that you have coming for the future. I appreciate that. So uh, the quickest way to find the book is the throwawaygirl.com. That will go directly to me. I will hand sign every book that comes through my website and send out. So it, it literally comes to me and it's all handled that way. If you're in a, a little bit of a rush and you're like, I can't wait, I gotta have this book today. Uh, you can go on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Walmart.com, uh, Kindle uh, as well. Um, obviously, you know, anywhere really books are sold, it should be available. I'm working on getting it in libraries as well. I just got my certificate from the Library of Congress to be able to be in libraries. So uh -huh. um, that's coming soon. But if you're looking for maybe a hand-signed book, just go directly to my website, thethrowawaygirl.com. And then in addition to that, if you're looking for me on social media, just look up The Throwaway Girl. So at The Throwaway Girl on Instagram or at The Throwaway Girl on Facebook, that will take you to my two pages there as well. I love it. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? I just want to thank you. You're the first podcast that I've been on for my book. Uh, I have admittedly been slacking on that side of things, trying to get on podcasts, but um, I just want everybody to realize, again, I see you, I hear you, you're not alone in this, this is not your fault, and keep on shining your lights, you know, that's what this book is about, is helping you light that flame within, sometimes it's a spark when you want to give up on life, sometimes it's a roaring, raging fire when you get excited about something, I hope this has helped you in some way to feed your flame, and just feed your flame and help others feed theirs as well. Yep. 
Exactly. And yes, that your book has helped me feed my flame. That your book got me so excited. And so I really hope people jump on Amazon, jump on barnesandnoble.com and truly grab their copy today because it is that good. <laughs> Tiffany, thank, thank you. you so much for being on the show. And it's an honor and a privilege that you let me be the first to interview you. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And again, everybody keep on shining your light. Thank you for spending time listening to our conversation. If you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe, like, and share so we can reach more listeners with our powerful messages. And stay tuned to hear about our affiliates and recommendations. They change from episode to episode. Thank you for listening to this podcast and all our other podcasts on YouTube and Spotify. I would like to also shout out a couple of apps that have helped me and a couple of products that have helped me in my podcast journey. FUD. What the FUD is FUD? The FUD app is an app that connects you to those who need your business. There is something for everyone. Side hustles? Check. Coaching opportunities? Check. Audience? Check. They have what you want and what you need within one place and they support you and your hustle, or shall I say, fussle. Dubby. Let me teach you how to Dubby. Dubby is a natural energy booster. They also make a hydration powder and they give you free gifts. Share this episode back to me at coleyscleaners at gmail.com and I will give you a savings promo code. Are you a coach? a teacher, an educator, and you have wisdom that you'd like to share to others that you may not find on the platforms you're currently on, follow me and this podcast on the Wisdom app.